0: We're continuing this morning in our series through the book of Matthew, and we're still in the Beatitudes, and this morning we're going to look at Matthew 5, 8, and 9. That's right, we're taking two Beatitudes this morning, just cruising right along. Uh, But we're going to look at both these things of being pure in heart and being called to be peacemakers. And I was, of course, thinking about this all week as I was preparing for the message, and I thought about how much effort people put into maybe going after these things externally. So just think about being pure or being clean. Now this is something that's good, like we should want to be clean, right? And you think about the amount of money that people spend on getting clean and staying clean Soap and deodorant and shampoo and beauty products and all the line of stuff. Hundreds of millions of dollars spent on people trying to get clean externally. You just have to think, there's not near the effort on the internal part of us, is there, in our world? There's not near the effort put into getting our heart clean. Or discovering what it means for us to have a pure or a clean heart. Or what about being a peacemaker? Almost everybody wants peace. The absence of trouble, things to go well. There not to be conflict between us and other people. But there have been so many things, so many ways, so many devices that have been developed in order for us to kind of be distracted from the ultimate source of struggle, of conflict. Or there have been counterfeit solutions offered. You can have peace if you do this or if you don't do that. So all of this is in my head and this is emphasis that I see around us on the external part of things. How there's so much effort given to the outside and very little on the inside. So my goal this morning is to try to explain what Jesus is talking about in these two verses and then help us understand what it means for us to live this way. How does this happen? Well, we can read the text and say, okay, well, this is what we're supposed to do. But if we don't understand how this works, if we don't understand how this can actually be true of us, then what's the point? So my goal and my job this morning is to rightly handle the Word of God in such a way that we are challenged and encouraged. It's what I'm praying for myself. That's what I'm praying for you. So let's open our Bibles, if you haven't done so, to Matthew chapter 5. And as we've been doing, as we've gone through the Beatitudes, we're going to start in verse 1 so that this becomes familiar. Maybe you'll memorize it. Maybe it will just be in your mind. But I want to read the whole section every time we move forward a little bit in the Beatitudes So that it is familiar to us. So follow along if you would. Matthew chapter 5 and starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, these are characteristics that do not come naturally to us, to be pure in heart, to pursue peace. This is not what we always want to do in our flesh. It's not natural. And so I pray that because of our time together in your word this morning, that you would open our understanding, that we would come to know what it means to have purity of heart, what it means to pursue peace and that you would come and be our teacher. Lord, I've studied through the week, I've prepared comments, but it's not ultimately up to me, it's up to you. You have to do this work through your spirit, and so I ask, Lord, that you would come, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our understanding, that we would become more like Christ as we seek to follow him in obedience. So thank you. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here at Grace for a little while, you know that I love making connections between the Testaments. I love seeing how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New and how the New Testament writers are relying heavily on the Old Testament. I love making those kinds of intertestamental connections in my preaching. And one of the reasons, as we're in the New Testament now, that I keep going back to the Old Testament so often is because I am fully convinced that the scriptures are harmonious, that they fit together, that there is not this huge difference. It's not God of wrath and God of love. It's the same God. It's not law and grace God has always been gracious and he has always had a law and so in my attempt to give the whole Bible to us as a church I want to make these kinds of connections so that you don't get to think well we can just kind of put the blinders on and see what's happening here and it's totally isolated it's not as we move through the New Testament specifically and we read what Jesus says what the apostles say we should read that and go hey I've heard that before Or I've seen that before. Or this is familiar to me because I've read something in the Old Testament. So I think it's so valuable that we see these connections because it tells us there is one theme in Scripture. There is one God. There is one plan of salvation that is through Jesus Christ. And all of this culminates in the coming of Christ, the establishment of the church. It is so helpful for us to see the unity of the Scriptures. And that's why I keep going back and forth. Now, when we get to our text today in Matthew 5 and specifically verse 8, we are going to see a very clear connection back to the book of Psalms. And as we've gone through Matthew this far, we've seen a tremendous amount of connection to the Psalms and to Isaiah specifically. So today, the connection for verse 8 comes from a connection to Psalm 24. And that's where we're going to go for a parallel passage here. So verse 8 In Matthew chapter 5 says, "'Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God.'" So if we go back to Psalm 24, I want to read just a few verses because I want you to get in your mind that this is not some new concept that Jesus is talking about. This is not the first time the people of God have been instructed in this way. It has been taught from the beginning, and I think Psalm 24 serves as a sort of commentary on Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. So if you want, you can turn there and follow along. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 3. And listen for the parallels. So Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, they're going to see God. Now listen to what David says, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully he will receive blessing from the lord and righteousness from the god of his salvation can you see the connection you see the similarity in language between matthew 5:8 and psalm 24 to ascend the hill of the lord to stand in his holy place is to be in his presence to be there with him that's the question david is asking what does it take For sinful man to be in the presence of God, those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Now, in the context of Psalm 24, clean hands and pure heart is referring to external hands and internal heart. It's both of those things, right? So the person who would dwell in the presence of God, who would ascend the hill of the Lord, cannot be soiled and stained with sin, Right, He has to have clean hands and a pure heart. His conduct must be such that he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Does that sound familiar? That's Psalm 1. So the point here is that, yes, you have to have clean hands, but that's not enough. The psalmist is not telling us, well, if you just get everything on the outside good, then come on in. You can be in the presence of God. There is an internal kind of transformation that has to happen if we are to be in the presence of God. And this is what he means by saying the one who would ascend the hill of the Lord, the one who would come into the presence of God, must have a pure heart. What does that mean? Well, it means he must understand his unworthiness, his sinfulness. He must understand that because of what his hands have done, Because of the condition of his heart, he is dirty, he is sinful, and he must first be purified before he can be and stand in the presence of God. And the psalmist says that the one who is clean and pure will receive blessing from the Lord. Now, Jesus says a very similar thing, doesn't he, in Matthew 5, 8, when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So hopefully you can see some pretty obvious connections between these two passages. Now, let's go back to Matthew 5 and back to verse 8. When Jesus says... Blessed are the pure in heart. I think he has Psalm 24 in mind. But it's not as if Jesus is only concerned with the heart. So the difference, of course, in the passages is that Psalm 24 includes heart and hands, and Jesus just talks about the heart. So are we to assume that it doesn't really matter what we do externally, that Jesus is just worried about, let's just get your heart taken care of, then you can live however you want. It's all about the internal. Is that what he's saying? No. That's absolutely not what he's saying. But we have to get the order right on these things because Jesus teaches really clearly elsewhere in Matthew 12 that it is out of the heart that comes what we say, what we do, how we act, our actions, our attitudes. All of that is coming from somewhere. So in Matthew 12, when Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart... Abundance meaning overflow, stock, what's in there. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. He is saying that if the heart is bad, the actions are bad. But if the heart is clean, if it is pure, then it follows that what it's telling the body to do, what it's telling the mouth to speak, will follow. You get that kind of pattern there? So it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the hands. He does. But he knows the primary thing that has to change with his people is not just their actions, but their hearts. The thing that motivates the action is what needs to change. So in the statement, we can conclude that the purity that Jesus is talking about, the the cleanliness of the heart, is not internal only, but it's what is inside of a person that's going to dictate what comes out. He cares about both. And a pure heart is what is going to produce clean hands. Now when Jesus talks this way, when he says in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, we should almost hear a rebuke against the established religious system of the day. So you remember earlier in Matthew when Jesus starts his public ministry uh, the religious leaders during this time are called Pharisees and Sadducees. They start paying really close attention because Jesus is unorthodox to them. He's, he's a problem. They're, they're starting to watch what he does really carefully when he starts his public ministry. And when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, it is a sort of rebuke against them. You see, the Pharisees, which I know they get a bad rap all the time. We pick on them a lot. There were good and godly men who were Pharisees. But by and large... They are the ones who are constantly riding Jesus, trying to trip him up, trying to catch him in a lie because he is introducing a a whole new system in the completion and the fulfillment of what God had set up. So they're always on his case, right? Well, the Pharisees were so insistent upon the complex and intricate completion of the moral and the ceremonial law that that's all they cared about. As we move through Matthew, we're going to see Jesus say all kinds of stuff against them that they're so focused on, well, are your, are your tassels long enough? And did you tithe the right amount of mint? Did you do the right thing externally? And they had neglected the matter of the heart, which is what Jesus is primarily concerned with. They prided themselves on the externals, beating their chest as they prayed in public and trying to act super humble when inside they were full of garbage, We get on into Matthew chapter 23. Jesus has a whole bunch of indictments against this group. And he says, this is 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also... Outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So they thought that based on their external keeping of the law, the doing of the thing, they would be blessed by God. They ignored the fact in the teaching of Psalm 24 and what Jesus is saying that it is the purity of the heart that counts. It's not just what we do, it's what motivates the doing. Jesus says it is those who are pure inside that are blessed. So how does this happen? How does one get a pure heart? Is it something we can do? Something God can do? How does this work? Well, we purify the heart by replacement. By replacement, we need new hearts. Regeneration is the word that we use for conversion, for the new birth, is what Jesus teaches all over the Gospels, and it is the only thing that will ultimately purify our hearts, and it happens by means of a heart transplant, taking out what's there and putting something totally new in it's very significant that this is how the Bible talks because it doesn't leave any room to say, well, God can just take what is inherently in me and, and he'll, he'll take the good part of me and he'll get rid of the rest and then boom, that'll purify my heart. It doesn't say that at all. What it says is that the heart that is within us is desperately sick, needs to be totally removed and something else must replace it. This is what God promised in the Old Testament would happen when he sends the Messiah. This is Ezekiel 36. I hope this is familiar to you because it is one of the most precious promises that is made in the Scriptures. Ezekiel 36, 25. This is what God says. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what happens? What is God promising? Regeneration. New birth new heart. How do we purify the heart? Well, first, we don't do it. It's an act of God's grace in which he reaches inside, takes out the sinful heart, and gives us a heart that beats for him. This is the promise of the new covenant. So who are the pure in heart? Those who have been saved by the grace of God, who have been given a new heart, new affections. And how does this replacing work happen? The Bible tells us it's through regeneration. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And that is how it happens. That is the truth. By repenting of our sin and asking God to change us, to save us, he will give us a new heart, he gives us his own spirit, new desires, and he causes us to walk in obedience to him. That's how it happens. It's such a precious promise because did you hear anywhere in there what we have to do? Just receive. The work is receiving. And isn't that a blessing? Imagine the weight if God were to say, well, you better get on this. and You better work hard enough to earn a new heart. That's not how it happens. This is all of God's work and it is all of his grace. Now, what's the promise attached to this? What do we read? What happens? What is the result of being pure in heart? Look at Matthew 5, 8 again. Blessed are the pure in heart because, why are they blessed? They shall see God. Now, what is this seeing? What is the vision that is being spoken of here? What does it mean to see God? Given what the Bible says, we're going to look at this in just a second, I would say that the seeing God that Jesus is talking about here is not literal, not yet. Not literal, not yet. I'll explain what that means in a moment. But the Bible is very clear that God the Father is not something that we see with our human physical eyes. Let me give you a couple of texts. John says in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. And he goes on to explain how Jesus, the Son of God, is the one revealing the Father to everyone. But he says, no one has ever seen God. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 17, he's giving this doxology of a statement to Timothy. And he says, now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. He's not visible by human eyes, he is invisible. Jesus himself, when he's talking to the woman at the well, this is John 4. Remember what he says about God? Does he say that God is a person that you can go find and look at? No, he says God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The testimony of the Bible is that God is not a person that we see with our physical eyes. Not as we see one another. No one has ever seen God, the Bible says. So then what in the world is Jesus talking about? When he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Does he mean that if we become pure in heart, we will be given some kind of special access that those who aren't quite as pure don't have? Does it mean that if we walk in purity before the Lord, that those who are pure in heart will kind of catch a glimpse out of the corner of their eye, like, what was that, a little shadow or something going on? No. No, that is not what he is talking about. Like I said, this is not literal, not yet. As I said before, This means that one day, so let's deal with the not yet part. One day, you and I, if you belong to Christ, we will see God literally. We'll be in his presence. This is a promise that we see in the scriptures, right? We've we've actually referenced this text a few times over the past weeks, that when sin has finally and decisively and ultimately been dealt with and God comes down to dwell with his people, we will see him. We will be in his presence, unmediated, right there. And we'll see him as he is. John captures this, I think, really clearly. This great and precious promise. Listen to 1 John 3 and verse 2. John says, Beloved... We are God's children now. It's who we are. We belong to him. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. So that's true, right? John says, I don't know what it's going to be, but when he comes, we're going to see him. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So it's not literal, not yet, but in addition to this kind of future orientation, the the vision, the sight of God that will be coming, I think there is a couple of other ways that right now, in this moment, we see God. If we take the phrase, see God, to be similar to what we saw in Psalm 24, right, this is why we had the parallel passage, because there, it's being in the presence of God, ascending the hill, standing in his holy presence, And I think there are ways that this happens now through his spirit. Right? We just saw the promise of a new heart, of a new spirit, of God being in us through his spirit. And in that sense, we can say that we are in the presence of God because his spirit is within us, which is a kind of sight, I suppose. But there's also a different sense right now in which we see the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And I think this is really important for us. In John 14, verse 8. Just before this, Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. And the disciples are sort of confused by this. They, They don't understand Jesus saying, I am the only way to the Father. And Philip, in verse 8, thinks he has found a way to clear everything up. He's got a great idea. He says, Jesus... Jesus, I got got an idea. How about this one? 14.8. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. (laughs) Let's just just do this thing right now. Just show us the Father, and it'll be enough. Just, Just do it. We'll be happy with that. We're good. But Philip has massively missed the point. And Jesus, sort of gently, but sort of not, rebukes him for this. This is the next verse, John 14:9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who is in me does his works. Did you catch that in the passage, what Jesus says? If anyone has seen the Father, or if anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. Which means that, yes, there is a forward-looking blessing. There is a future not-yet blessing of being totally sin-free in the presence of God. He's with us. We're with Him. Boom! That's what eternity is. But there is another sense in which right now we see Him through the Word. You want to know what God thinks about anything? Open the Bible. You want to know what he is like? Read about Christ. Because Jesus is the one who reveals the Father. This is what John was getting at in John 1 when he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's referring to Jesus. So there is a sense in which Christ Reveals to us the Father and we can see him as we observe the word of Christ his teaching how he reveals the Father's will to us does that make sense so it's a not literal not yet kind of seeing but it is the blessing of pursuing this kind of purity in heart that we will be able to look at the scriptures and see them for what they are because of this new heart because of this new spirit that has purified us and readied us to be in the presence of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they have access to God through his word. All right, let's keep moving. Verse 9 of Matthew chapter 5. So we need to try and understand what Jesus says when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, this idea of peacemaking, what are we talking about? I think most of us are probably familiar. My own definition would be peacemaking is to facilitate reconciliation between two offended parties. There's conflict there and that needs to be dealt with so that those two parties can come together. I think we understand this in terms of you know nations being at war with one another. There's conflict between countries and oftentimes their leaders get together and they try to negotiate what? a peace treaty, right? They're, they're trying to say, okay, there's, there's conflict, there's tension here, what do we need to get rid of? What do we need to do in order for these countries, these nations to come together? And I think that's a pretty good way of understanding what it means to be a peacemaker. So as we seek to understand Jesus' words, however, here in Matthew 5, 9, <clears throat> I'm going to deal with this peacemaking in terms of a primary peacemaking and a secondary peacemaking, Josh already alluded to this in his call to worship, so we're prepped, we're primed, and you probably already know where I'm going with this. But the Bible is crystal clear that peace with God is primary, and that all other forms of peace, interpersonal, relational, nation to nation, family to family, individual to individual, all of that flows out of our reconciliation to God. So do you ever wonder, this is a side note, do you ever wonder why the peace treaties that nations establish don't last? Do you know why that is? Because there has not been peace with God made first. Of course it's not gonna last. There is a primary kind of peacemaking that must take place before any other kind of lasting peace can happen. So I wanna talk about this a little bit more. Let me show you what I mean. This term, peacemaker, is only found one other place in Scripture. Now the idea is all over the place, right? We are called to make peace, we're called to lay down our lives for one another, all of these things that have the idea, but as far as the term Jesus uses, it's only used one other place. Paul uses the verb form of this word in Colossians chapter 1 to describe the word of the work of Christ. So let me read this for you. I'm going to read it from my Bible so that we don't mess anything up. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this. This is verse 19 if you want to write it down. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace through the blood of his cross. So there's our word, making peace. That's the verb form. So Jesus uses it, peacemaker, noun form. Paul uses it in the verb form that Jesus has made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus was a peacemaker. And this is the primary peace that must be made, the first peace that needs to happen before there can be any hope for any kind of human or interpersonal peace. And here's where I think we miss this in our discussions. There is a hostility. There is a separation that exists between mankind and God. In our sin, we rebel against God, we stiff arm his law, we reject his love, and we sin And therefore, because of that sin, God has a just and holy hostility against us and our sin. We talk about being separated from God and we talk about what must happen for us to be reconciled to him. But we have to remember, it's not just on us The reconciliation that needs to happen is not just us repenting of our sin, rejecting it, confessing and coming to Christ. There is reconciliation on God's side that must happen before he can receive us. He's got all of this wrath and this anger against sin. What's he going to do with it? That has to be dealt with before we can have peace with God. We shouldn't think that God is just... Sitting there, everything's fine on his end, and he's just waiting for us to kind of get our act together and come back to him, and if we would just do that, everything's right. There is also his end of things that needs to be dealt with before we can have any hope of peace with him. And Paul tells us how this happened. Right there in Colossians 1, he explains to us that the wrath of God, his holy hatred of our sin was dealt with on the cross. That is the reason we can have peace with God. He says it so clearly in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the theme of the scriptures that we confess. Romans 5, one, what does that say? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't just say it from the Bible. We sing this all the time and it is so precious. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. That's God's reconciliation. That had to happen on his end. Are we just saying this yesterday? Till on the cross... As Jesus died and the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ we stand. The thing that was necessary for us to have peace with God happened on the cross. All of it. And because that primary peace has been made with God, you and I are called to imitate this By being peacemakers. There is no hope of this unless Christ did what he did. Now I want to jump to the last part of the verse, then we'll come back when we close in a few minutes and I'll show us what it means to be a peacemaker. But let's deal with the last half of this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And of course the big question here is, well, what does that mean? All over Matthew, Jesus says, do this because your Father does it. Be as your Father in heaven. We've already established that we are children of God. So why is he saying, blessed are you if you do this, because then you'll be called sons of God. Well, I think we've already established this as well because we understand that God is the one at work here. To empower us to live this way, we should interpret the last part of this verse in terms of his affirmation of our obedience. His affirmation of our obedience. So we could say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for God will call them his children. Be another good translation. And I get this idea of affirmation from other places in the Scripture where God calls Jesus, his son, as a way of affirming what he did. So let me show you just one example. The baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3, 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now Jesus did not become the Son at that moment, because God declared him to be the son, right? He was not previously not a son, and then all of a sudden God says, you're my son, he's like, oh, cool, now I'm the son. That is not what happened. God was expressing his pleasure with his son in his obedience, in fulfilling all righteousness by being baptized by John. And so similarly, I think when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, he is not saying, we become sons of God through our peacemaking. He is saying that when we act in obedience, God affirms us by saying, You're my child. I don't want to I don't want to treat this casually, and sometimes illustrations are dangerous, but sometimes when my sons do something that I would have done, or when they are obedient to what Tiff and I have asked them to do, you look at them and you say, That's my boy. What do I mean by that? Do I mean that previously he wasn't my son, but now he is? No. I'm affirming that he has acted in obedience and I'm saying, that's my son. I think in a much, much more significant way, that is what God is doing. When we are peacemakers, when we imitate what Jesus has done, God says, yes. I affirm that obedience. You are my child. What a blessing. So let's close now by asking, what, what does this look like? How can you and I actually be peacemakers? Sometimes I think, you know, we get the idea that being a peacemaker is just the absence of trouble, you know, the absence of conflict or Maybe sometimes we think that there must be absolute unity in order for there to be peace. And those things are, I suppose, partially true. We, we do seek the absence of conflict. That's a good thing. And unity is generally a good thing. But I think Jesus is our focus here and we are called to imitate him. So let's take our cues from him. Sound good? So if we're saying, yep, we want to imitate Jesus... Let's see how he did this. So we already established this. How did Jesus create peace? How did he create the peace that was necessary between us and God? He did it by dealing with sin. Jesus created peace by dealing with sin. He made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, even though you and I cannot deal with sin in the way that Jesus did... We do not offer atonement for our sin or for anyone else's sin. We don't hear a confession of someone in a way that kind of can absolve them of their sin. That's not our role. That's God's role. But I think the principle stands. If we want peace, if we are to be peacemakers, we must deal with sin. Does it make sense? Sin is what causes discord, strife, jealousy, fighting, the fruit of sin is always the opposite of peace. Make sense? The fruit of sin, what what sin produces in your life is always the opposite of peace. So what do we do? How can we deal with sin in such a way that peace is promoted and pursued? We do this by making war against our sin. Jesus made peace by dealing with sin. We are called to make peace by dealing with sin. There's an old Latin phrase that goes all the way back to the time of Plato, still used in military context today. It is sic vis, pacum, parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. Anyone ever heard that before? I'm not saying that's some sort of divinely inspired thing, but I think it makes sense. If we are to be peacemakers, if we are to imitate Jesus in the way that he made peace, then we must make war on sin. The peace that Jesus brings did not come without a fight, and the peace that we pursue will not come without a fight. We are called to make war on our sin, fight against the sin of envy that creates this nasty kind of jealousy inside of a church. Fight against the sin of anger that is going to hurt and be abrasive and ruin relationships. Fight against the sin of gossip and slander which only tears other people down in order to make you look better. Fight against those things. Make war on them. This is not just kind of a recommendation. It is what we are commanded to do. In Romans chapter eight, Paul says in verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, this fight for peacemaking is a fight to put away sin. If we're going to do this, if we're going to live like this, we must be able to recognize the sins in our own life that hinder us from making peace. And you have to identify what those are. It's not going to be the same for all of us. Maybe it is envy, anger, gossip, jealousy, rage, slander. Pick pick one. We all deal with them. There are all sins in our lives that keep us from being able to establish peace. But the Bible calls us to put it to death. So can you see the connection now between these two Beatitudes? So on one hand, pure in heart, we're going to see God. And now peacemakers being called the sons of God? Well, I think the connection is that a couple of different things. They both come as a result of Jesus' work, right? The purity of heart we establish is the heart replacement that is a work of God's grace. This kind of peacemaking that we are called to do is a result of Christ's work in us through His Spirit. But more than that, I think this is how it goes. When we pursue the kind of internal purity, that we are called to, the purity of heart that God calls us to. And I say pursue because I think that's right. So initially, we have the heart transplant. Boom, gets put in, right? Well, from then on, we got to grow in that. By the power of the Spirit. This is why when the promise is made of the new heart, it comes interlinked with the promise of the Spirit, Because it's not enough just to have the one-time deposit of a new heart. We need the power of the Spirit of God to enable us to keep going, to keep pursuing righteousness, to keep living in a way that is uh, promoting purity of heart. So here's how this works. As we strive, as we live, as we work towards purity in our lives, being like Christ, we are going to be confronted with our own sinfulness We're going to see those kinds of sins that would prevent us from making peace and we are called to deal with them. So do you see how those things are fitting together? We are pure in heart. God has made us that way and yet we need to pursue it. As we pursue it, as we take inventory, we come up against the ugliness of our own sin. The things that prevent us from being peacemakers and we deal with those in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God is calling us to in these two beatitudes. And I want to be like that. Don't you? Don't you want to be pure in heart? Don't you want to honor God with the way you live and have a desire for peace? And if you'll allow me to just repeat what I said last week, this is a gradual process. You are not just going to wake up one morning and be totally pure in heart or just be loving, peacemaking. That's all I'm going to do. and I'm going to do it perfectly. It never happens. This is a gradual process that we are to grow in as the people of God. And what better context to do this than in the local body? This is where God has placed us. This is the area that we can grow together and we can pursue purity of heart and our ability to be peacemakers because of what Christ has done. So what I want you to do this week is I want you to take some inventory of your own heart, see where you're at with these things. Are there sins in your life that are keeping you from being able to make peace? But not only for you, think about how can you encourage those in our body? How can you come alongside someone and say, I see what you're doing, I recognize that, I just want to encourage you to keep doing that Or maybe someone's a couple steps off. How can you come around them and say, I want to pursue this kind of purity of heart with you. So think of what's going on in your own heart, but also think corporately. How can we encourage one another to live like this? It's what Christ has called us to. We are responsible to live this way in the power that he gives us. So, are you ready for this? You ready to be the kind of church that pursues purity of heart, that pursues peacemaking because of what Christ has done? I pray that God would give us the strength to do this. It ain't going to be easy, but it is what we're called to do. So let's pray that God will give us the strength. Father in heaven, these are in some ways impossible commands. And yet you promise blessing to those who live this way. And what an encouragement, Lord, to be reminded from your word that when you give us a new heart, you also give us your spirit. You you keep the heart beating, so to speak, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And it's just, for me, such a wonderful comfort because it tells me that I am not alone in this. It's not just up to me to pull up my bootstraps and, and grit my teeth and set my jaw and try to be holy on my own. I can't do it. I can't do it. But by your Spirit, you can enable me to do it. And that's true for everyone in this room who trusts you. If we belong to you, God, we have your Spirit, which means we have the ability to live this way. So I pray Lord, that you would work through this text, work in our hearts. Help us to be this way as we live and work and and worship together as a church. Help us to hold one another accountable. Help us to maximize the opportunities we have together, Bible studies and small groups and community groups, whatever it is. Help us to encourage one another to pursue the kind of purity of heart that will allow us to see you and to be peacemakers so that we can hear that affirmation, you are my child. That's what we want, God. And we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.